Come on, let's go. Fuck it. We'll do it live. Let's go. Coming at you from New Jersey, the capital of misery and the place where metal forgot to die. This is Here Lies Metal, the podcast that brings you the origins, history, and culture of everything metal. Once again, I am Maledictus, and I will be your overlord for today and all of eternity. Welcome. Now, I have to say before we start, I apologize for my subdued voice. Seems a little bit compromised. I have a case of vampire sickness or conjunctivitis, and I'm just suffering from allergies in general for whatever reason. So if you'll accept my apology for my lack of voice today, that would be great. But let's continue the podcast anyway. We'll do it. We'll do it live. Let's go. This is a this episode took a little bit long to get out. It's been very under the weather this week and you know, we're definitely late on recording this one. It's also a very complicated subject, so bear with me. Sometimes these things will take a little bit longer than your average playlist, but what do you care? Let's go. As usual, before we begin, I've decided to do the news. These are a few stories that the metal media at large has been covering this week. So if you haven't heard them already, get ready for the maledicted spin on these stories. Here we go. Surprise! Sleep, stoner legends, Sleep has released their new album titled The Sciences on, who guessed it, 420. How original, Sleep. You released your album on 420. Whoa, that's so edgy of you. But anyway, you know, they're a good band and um, I haven't listened to the songs yet. I'm sure they're pretty good. I just, you know, don't really understand how people put Sleep on a pedestal. I mean, they're just another stoner band. They're not legends. They're really not that you know, their their songs are catchy and effective, but they're I've heard way better stoner bands and way better doom bands than Sleep. So I mean, they're kind of a band that plays the same riff over and over for an hour and uh, you know passes that off as as um, as a masterpiece for some reason. I don't know. I think it's because Henry Rollins one day said that he, they were awesome, so everyone was like, every hipster in the world was like, yeah, Sleep. And I can remember last time I went to the free concert in. In Brooklyn, in Williamsburg, of course, it was super packed with people that you wouldn't really think that would be into sleep. You you know, I have friends that have seen sleep back in the 90s and they said it wasn't really a big deal. But now, of course, they're put on this pedestal. I'm not sure if Sleepy don't even understands it. So there you go. But new album, The Sciences. So we'll check that out. We haven't checked it out yet. It's been out for a few days now. 420 was a few days ago. And, uh, you know, it just, you know, I think they're just getting a little out of control with their marijuana worship their cannabis worship i mean you know that's all good and stuff I'm, I'm down with that but you know it's not everything people just uh there's more to life i mean the cover shows like an astronaut with uh like weed floating around him or something like that so we get it guys you like weed okay you guys are so edgy anyway let's move on in this continuing story we covered this before but Charges were dismissed in the case involving Behemoth, Bohemoth, Behemoth, frontman um, Nurgle, because he had discredited, he had defiled the Poland, Poland's national coat of arms with some sort of satanic injury. I think it has a cross on it with an eagle. He basically put an upside down cross, which is very offensive to the predominantly Catholic nation of Poland. However, they have dismissed these charges, as I figured they would. You know, something like that isn't really going to you know, go too far. So 
I believe, in the nation of Poland. It is illegal to disrespect their coat of arms or any symbols. So this is why these charges were brought up. You know, obviously, in our country, we would think that's weird. But in Poland, that's kind of a thing. Anyway, Nurgle, another guy who thinks he's so edgy. Oh, I'm so evil. I took the Polish coat of arms and I made it evil. Everyone, fear me. Look at me. Look at this silly makeup I wear. I don't get this. You know, they're like black metal pop or something. No behemoth. Anyway, back in 2011, as you know, Nurgle was acquitted once more in Poland for charges where he insulted religious sentiments when he called the Catholic Church the most murderous cult on the planet, which is not too far from the truth, but all religions are the most murderous cult on the planet, except for uh, Scientology. They haven't killed anyone, or or the Mormons. But, uh, yeah, during the band's performance in Poland, he tore up a copy of the Bible, calling it the Book of Lies. I think uh, I think our um, subject might get um, mad at that, call it, t- taking his title and calling it the Bible. Aleister Crowley, of course wrote the book of lies or he was dictated to him by spirits from another dimension either way nurgle you're you're just calm down dude you know uh, no one thinks you're that cool you know i don't know what the whole big deal about behemoth is i think they're touring with slayer and slayer's final tour i don't know why you should kick them off the tour they're just terrible anyway let's move on and more people getting arrested due to apparent satanism in the world the world is fighting back against uh Evil symbology and Satanism, I guess. In um, band Rotting Christ, you're all familiar with them, was arrested in Georgia after being mistake being mistaken for terrorists due to their um, satanic nature. Now, um, I don't mean Georgia as in Georgia, where the pages come from. I mean Georgia as in Georgia, in Russia. Georgia. I come from Georgia. They were arrested there in that Georgia, not to be confused with our Georgia. Though I think in our Georgia, the same thing might actually happen. According to the label's Facebook page, brothers and bandmates in Riding Christ, vocalist and guitarist Sakis Tolis, is that Greek? I think that's Greek. And Themis Tolis were arrested in Georgia, the country, Georgia, Georgia, last week on spurious grounds involving charges of terrorism allegedly based on the band's name. They just didn't like that name. In Russia, you know, you get into a lot of trouble. I think... um, that band from Switzerland was actually, uh, they're kind of like Bohemoth. What were they called? Uh, uh, Belfagor. Belfagor. They were um, fucked with in Russia. I don't know if they were arrested, but they were seriously fucked with by um, Orthodox church members for just coming to Russia. So, you know, in um, Eastern Europe and Russia, they don't really dig when you make fun of or try to defile the Christian religions, they're not down with that. So, you know, you got to be careful when you go over there. So without previous warning or no official reason, we found ourselves in jail, says the members of the band, locked in a small and rather dirty cell without being permitted any contact to the outside world or legal representation to our embassy for 12 hours. What did you expect when you went to Georgia? You're lucky they did not put you in gulag. Conditions were so bad, no further information was provided during this time, but eventually they let them out, so... Even in Georgia, they were like, all right, you guys are just silly. You know, we're not going to let you rot in this jail. But, you know, you got to watch out when you go to other countries. In more anti-Satanism news, there's a lot of anti-Satanism going on this week all over the world. Protesters aim to shut down France's Hellfest because of Satan. And, of course, they just don't like the name. You think in France this wouldn't really be a 
you know, an issue, but apparently it is. The world is just coming down. The world is tired of Satan. It's tired of matter, but we must continue the fight. This year, the festival is headlined by Avenged Sevenfold. Is this that? Wow, that's really what? Why are we? Pro that's that just makes it pretty benign, if you ask me. A band like Annette Avenged Sevenfold. That's one of those shit emo metal bands. Go away. Uh, Iron Maiden is playing. That's cool. And Judas Priest. That's pretty cool. Avenged Sevenfold does not deserve to share the stage with such bands like that. What a shit band. And who else? The Deftones are playing? Come on. How hell hellish is this? Marilyn Manson? Nightwish? Stone Sour? Uh, Megadeth is playing. That's cool. It's all pretty standard bands. I don't know what this protest is all about. You know, Belfegor or Behemoth is not playing. Rotting Christ is not playing. So what is the um, the problem here? So I, I don't really know what the, you know, those are pretty benign bands if you ask me. Some of them great, some of them awful. Nevertheless, so they are giving this thing a problem again. Of course, the show will go on as usual. It's never a problem. In Albuquerque, New Mexico, we've covered Albuquerque last time with Ozzy. Actually, it wasn't Albuquerque, but it was Alamogordo. There's just metal happening in New Mexico, apparently. Um, Albuquerque's metalhead mayor joined Anthrax on stage. Tim Keller, uh, he is the 30th mayor of Albuquerque, New Mexico, is a proud metal fan who believes that the empowerment potential of heavy metal and since his inauguration in nine, in 2017, he's made several onstage appearances to, to introduce his favorite bands, and this time being Anthrax. He um, actually introduced Trivium, who are a terrible band. I, you know, you're like, why don't you like anything? Because a lot of these new bands are awful. I mean, there's a lot of great new bands. Of course, as you know, I like them because they sound old. But bands like Trivium, are, are they're awful. They're truly a terrible band, just like Avenged Sevenfold. This guy's a metal fan, and he made an appearance with a great band like Anthrax. We love Anthrax. And proclaiming that he believes in the power of metal. So all hail Mayor Tim Keller for being the metal mayor of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Is Albuquerque, New Mexico the capital of all metal? I'm not sure about that. But they are trying. Other things this guy's done, he's, he urges issues... Like improve public transit. Not that that's really necessary in Albuquerque. And wants to decriminalize small amounts of marijuana. Hey, New Mexico, that goes a long way. It's a kind of, you know, one of those states where, you know, they don't really uh, let you get away with anything. Though, however, you're allowed to drive as fast as you want in New Mexico. I swear, I've driven through the entire state and I didn't see one cop. So you could really drive through the state at a thousand miles per hour until you get to Arizona where there are cops everywhere trying to stop you for everything However, I remember in New Mexico, outside of Las Cruces, um, there was actually a Border Patrol checkpoint that you have to go through on Interstate 10. And you have to answer all these questions. And basically, you know, it's like, whoa, what, what is this, like, the Third Reich? But yeah, that's a normal thing down there. You know, border, they're, they're like, are you an American citizen? And I'm like, yeah, of course. I'm from New Jersey. And they're like, oh, okay, cool. So they let me by. But, you know, I can imagine if you weren't, you're probably going to get busted. So... We're going to build a wall. We're going to build a wall. We're going to stop all these Mexicans from getting in. So in New Mexico, they believe this in the Border Patrol. And this is about maybe 20 miles, 30 miles north of the border. New Mexico, metal. What else do we have here? Metallica asks 
fans to volunteer at their local food bank, whichever food bank that might be. That's right. Metallica is teaming up with Feeding America to ask people, fans, to volunteer in food banks on May 23rd. It's a while from now. And support local communities. Isn't that very nice, Metallica, of you? You guys being so rich, you're thinking of those that cannot eat. So they want you to volunteer. On May 23rd will be Metallica's Day of Service. And they're encouraging you to give in to your local community. Uh, in the band's statement, they said, let's do, this in, let's do this in James Hetfield's voice. Ready? Last year, we announced the formation of Within My Head. Yeah. Our foundation that aims to assist enrich the lives of members and the communities that have supported us for so many years as well as to encourage participation from fans and trans and to facilitate volunteerism among Metallica family. Yeah. Let's, let's have Loris read the next thing. You know, like, with that in mind, like, we're proud to announce that the first day of service, like Wednesday, May 23rd, as we invite Metallica fans across the United States to join us in volunteering day with our friends at the community food banks. We support doing... The last summer's North American tour. And let's get back to James Hetfield. In cooperation with Feeding America, we are proud to make contributions to the local partners in each city that perform. In during 2017 stadium tour, we would like to continue supporting the fight against hunger by asking you to give a few hours of your time on May 23rd as Metallica fans unite to make a difference. Yeah. All right. So there you go, people. Volunteer to your local food bank because of Metallica. You will be looked upon with great benevolence by the gods, by the metal gods, uh, thanks to Metallica. So Metallica giving back to you. And that is the news. So now we have to get into our weekly segment is shit that Varg says. As you know, every week Varg says some kind of shit that's worth talking about, some sort of ridiculous shit, and he knows it. So there we go. What do we got here today? This week on the Julian Perspective, looks like Varg is going on about um, living in a world without technology. He is really embracing that again. This video is called A Simpler Life in Practice, Part 2. Let's find out what he's going on is about. He's showing his property here in, in his, looks like, compost piles of shit and, and farming and how um, industrial farming is ruining the soil. I'm telling you, this guy can't wait until the world ends so he could live out there in the woods with his family in his Volkswagen VW bus and live off the land like he claims he's doing. So yeah, that's what this guy's doing this time. He's basically showing all of his farming and his irrigation methods. And oh, oh, look at this. Oh, wasps don't kill wasps because they kill flies. And that's important. Most people don't like wasps because, you know, they, they're not bees. They don't make honey. They just like piss you off and they're just shitheads of insects. But no, according to Vark, we must, the wasps are very important for pest control. Fuck the wasps. We should take a flamethrower to all wasps' nests. That's my opinion, Varg. Yeah, he's going to survive. So, and these guys like this, like I say, they can't wait to the great collapse. But this is the way this guy chooses to live. 
So he, he also made another video this week, which is worth mentioning, comparing the um, immigration into Europe by uh, African countries as the same. He, he put it basically in terms of Lord of the Rings. So basically he took all these real articles, but changed the words immigrants into like orcs and things like that and elves being Europeans and comparing it to that to try to put it in into perspective for people. You know, he's a Eurocentrist, like I said before. And don't, I am not racist. So there you go. If you want to learn how to do this, Varg is, I miss when this guy used to talk about, you know, metal and stuff and and how he, you know, killed uh, Euronymous. But now he's just talking about being a survivalist. So either way, each week we have to tell you shit that Varg says. And it's always interesting because it's always, no matter what he does, it's kind of ridiculous. He makes a few videos every week. And this week is really focusing on his farming methods and how he shits in the ground and all that. And then he grows food in it, you know, and how to effectively farm your own soil without destroying the soil, without having a dust ball in your own backyard. So yeah, we have to give Varg credit for his knowledge. Oh, what's he got here? This is a, a rack of clothing. And we don't need to use washing machines because, you know, we're not going to have um, electricity in the future. So we have to learn how to wash our own clothing using nature. He's showing pictures of his blonde children here and his wife. He's like, they are Norwegian children. They are blonde for a, a biological reason because blonde hair takes place in the northern hemispheres. Yes. It's just fun to listen to this guy. I know, you're getting sick of him. And, you know, he must be liking every any time. Because I'm not the only one that really makes fun of Varg. If you look at all of most of the metal blogs, especially Metal Sucks, they love to just, anytime this guy says something ridiculous, these guys always have to post it as well. I'm not doing any different for the news. I'm just following in the footsteps of all the other metal blogs because I am not terribly original. This is not even a news show. Anyway, why are we talking about this guy anymore? Let's get on with this podcast. We left off last... Oh, by the way, we don't have any concert reviews or album reviews or anything like that. Or shout-outs. The usual people shout-out. The usual people give us feedback. You know, we got Ron and Chris out there always watching the show, always listening to the show and giving us feedback and liking the show, which is great. Thank you guys for continuing to listen to the Here Lies Metal podcast. You are truly the kings of metal, and the keys to the kingdom will be left to you. So let's get on with the next segment of last week's podcast, The Life of Aleister Crowley to Megatherion, this being part two. Bury me in the nameless grave. I came from God, the world to save. I brought them wisdom from above, worship and liberty. Last week we left off where Crowley was having some lovers disputes with his sugar daddy, Victor Neumann, and they parted ways because he realized that Crowley was really just using him for the money. And it was a very bad breakup, so Crowley put a curse on Victor Neumann, and Victor Neumann claims he feared for his life. He really believed all this stuff, so he took this very seriously. However, we didn't see him again in Crowley's life. He you know, got far away from a con man like Crowley and went on to live a happy life. Nevertheless, his um, gullibility in all this, as 
as many wealthy people would be tricked by Crowley's charm, his evil charm. After a life of leisure and sex magic spanning the entire globe, Crowley was, what do you know? He was out of money. He's out of inheritance. He basically had the inheritance of both his father and his mother, even though his mother hated him. She gave him money and he spent it all by having a great time, by doing as thou wilted. And that catches up with you eventually if you don't have any income, even if you're a rich person because your mommy and daddy aren't there to give you any more money. So trust fund Alistair Crowley is out of money. What must he do? At this point, he was relying on donations and fees from the OTO membership to live, which he was getting some money from. Uh, he had to actually sell the Boliskine Manor due to him not having any money. Of course, he sold it to Jimmy Page. Oh, no, he didn't do that yet. I don't know who he sold it to. But, you know, Jimmy Page, of course, would purchase this property. But we'll talk about that later, though. And when you're in this situation, you need a new opportunity. Crowley, of course, being clever. He was very clever and very intelligent, despite being a very sinister, you know, manipulating being, very narcissistic person. A very person lacking any empathy for other human beings. He's a very smart guy, so he would figure out something to make, to get him back on his feet. And that's what he did. So this takes us to 1914. World War I just broke out in Europe. So what does Crowley do? He gets the fuck out of there. And he sails to America aboard, what do you know, the Lusitania of all, of all ships, of all doomed boats in the world. He gets on the Lusitania and he only has $50 to his name because he's expecting to really make money in the new world. So he's not really prepared for this. He's just like, I'm just going to America like he always does. This guy has spanned the globe many times. So once again, even the lack of money is not going to stop him from traveling the world. So he ends up in New York City and he immediately gets a job writing for Vanity Fair for the famous astrologer at the time, Evangeline Adams. So I think Crowley was basically the horoscope guy in Vanity Fair. And, you know, people took that seriously. Like rich people with nothing to do, you know, they enjoyed the supernatural and they enjoyed the occult because hey, they, they had nothing else to worry about. So they thought it was, think of it as like young hipsters being fashionable by being involved in esoteric subjects and things that, you know, those poor people just were not smart enough to understand. It makes us pretty cool to uh, worship Baphomet and um, worship Egyptian gods, all the dead gods, you could say. You know, we're just too cool for Judeo-Christianity. That's for poor people. We are rich people. We worship Satan. No, no one's here as a Satan worshiper, actually, but we'll get into that later. While in New York City, um... He indulged in many an orgy, and this was 70 years before the disco scene in New York City, and he was a big fan of the Turkish bathhouse, so, you know, obviously that's a place where Crowley could get his rocks off, so, you know, he's a very progressive person, he's, he's doing what they did during the disco era way before it was cool, you know, getting involved in a lot of, um, homosexual activity, as well as plenty of uh, heterosexual activity. He was all over the map, this guy. Very ahead of his time sexually and socially and progressively, you might say. He's also a total asshole. He also, at this point, 
filed his canines into fangs to impress women. Oh, haven't we met that guy before this day and age? The guy with fangs. He's like, hey, ladies, I'm a vampire. Let me make your acquaintance. I think uh, Peter Steele did that, didn't he? And, and somehow people didn't think he was ridiculous for that. I thought that was a pretty ridiculous move. So he's doing to impress women. What did he do? He would bite women when he'd meet them to infect them with his power. He'd be like, hello, ladies. I'm going to, oh, give me your hand so I can kill. Oh, I bit your hand. You are now enslaved to me. Somehow that worked with this. It did work. Like women were impressed with that shit back then. I can't imagine doing that today, filing your teeth into fangs in this day and age. You know, unless, you know, you're, you hang around with goth girls who might be still impressed with things like that. Silly goth girls or boys. And um, they, that might work for them. But normal people, they're just going to be like, wow, that's ridiculous, man. You filed down your teeth. What is wrong with you? So, but anyway, he documented his sexual exploits, exploits in much detail in his diary. So this is all, you know, this isn't made up. This isn't, you know, hearsay. This is documented all of, you know, all of his debaucheries in New York City at the time. I'm sure there's entire books just on this. You could just go into that. You could make an entire podcast on the sexual exploits of Alistair Crowley, but which we're not going to do because we do not want to talk about Alistair Crowley's dick, his infected fucking dick, okay? His role during the war was interesting, and it was kind of treasonous, if you ask me. In America, Crowley posed as an Irishman, a man for Irish independence, and became sort of a propaganda troll for the Germans. Some say this was some kind of secret psyop and he was really working for British intelligence, but that's a whole other story. There was an entire conspiracy theory written that Crowley was some sort of secret agent his whole life, but I don't believe that. I think he was just an asshole. And he wrote anti-English propaganda for a German paper in the U.S. called The Fatherland. The Fatherland. I write for The Fatherland. And he wrote a cheeky article in the paper on how Germans failed to destroy his aunt's house in Croydon when they bombed Croydon with their airships, with their Zeppelins. So he gave out the address and said, you know, maybe they'll do it better next time, Germans. You know, here's my aunt's address. Can you please bomb her house? And it's things like that that people thought were probably over the top and how maybe he was actually a double agent serving the British. Of course, the British, you know, in general, the British press considered these and other actions treasonous. And as a result, the London branch of the OTA was raided, you know, since he was associated with this. And despite his tr status as a traitor, according, you know, in the eyes of the British public, he claimed that he was a double agent for his homeland. Of course, this just might have been one of his schemes. He would make outrageous claims, which kind of feeds this theory, articles to get attention. For example, comparing the Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm to Jesus Christ, something that Crowley didn't even believe in. You know, basically ridiculous claims like that. And he would also, he did, he pulled a stunt of decreeing Irish independence in front of the Statue of Liberty, made a whole big spectacle of it. So it was events like this and activities like this that um, some say were psyops to make the Germans appear more ridiculous, which isn't really that hard under most normal circumstances to make the Germans appear ridiculous. In this very day and age, it's pretty easy 
to make the Germans seem ridiculous. So you don't need to pull stunts like that, Alistair Crowley. We know the Germans are ridiculous. There's a lot of examples of that. They claim that the war was a prophecy fulfilled in his book of law, which he had said in the past that some great conflict was going to take place. So, of course, that's kind of in the day and age. It's kind of an easy prediction to make. I mean, a war is seemed very inevitable back then for, for many years. So it's, it's kind of like obviously. Uh, when the Americans enter the war, partly because of the sinking of the ill-fated Lusitania. There's also, actually, people don't realize the war wasn't necessarily started. World War I, the Americans didn't necessarily enter World War I because of Lusitania. They entered it because of the Zimmerman letter. Most of you people, you history retards, do not know this. When Germany contacted Mexico to declare war in America, and of course, the message never made it to Mexico. The Americans intercepted it, and they were like, that's it, Germans, we've had it with you. Crowley claimed that this was the result of his pro-German actions and it was all part of his plan to have the Lusitania sunk so that the Americans might enter the war. And he claimed as a result he deserved Britain's highest award, how he was responsible for getting the Americans to enter the war by any means necessary. You know, of course, really sealing the coffin on the Germans. So the question is, was he a super sleuth double agent or a flipping troll? We'll never know with him. He definitely kept us wondering. Overall, Crowley did very little for the war effort except run his mouth during World War I. Anyway, he's an American now, so he's going to see America. Whether he has money or not, he's going to get around. So you call this part, Crowley slept here, so you probably don't want to. You probably jizzed all over the bed. As, what, as he does, you know, you want to change the sheets after Crowley slept here. Naturally, Crowley uh, found a new lady, this time by the name of Janine Robert Foster. This is just one of his many ladies. He's, he gets a girl in every port, this guy, so it's really difficult to keep track of them. They move on and they come and go so quickly that really only the ones of notability, you know, really, really get mentioned here. So he toured the West Coast of America with this woman and paying a visit to the North American chapter of the OTO in Vancouver. Eventually ended up in Mexico. So not bad for the guy who only had $50. He's touring the West Coast, right? I can't do that right now. And I have more than $50 in my pocket. Um, later on, he took a magical vacation in New Hampshire. A magical vacation. Um, he did a lot of drugs and declared himself Master Therion. If he hadn't did that before, he did now. He's like, by the way, I am Master Theory, and I am the ultimate beast, 666. And um, so, you know, he did this as a result of taking a lot of drugs. I didn't know they had bath salts back then, you know. Is that what he was taking? Or, no, they didn't have acid back then either. What was he taking? Was it opium? I don't know. But somehow, due to his drug binges, he decided this. He declared this and wrote it down somewhere. Yet during his adventures, he performs a lot more sex magic, um, on a few more married women, um, made a few more married women pregnant, you know, and um, this was just a day in the life for Crowley. I don't think any of these children stuck, you know, I think there was a lot of miscarriages in his um, child making. He had a total of five children in his life, besides uh, the one we're about to talk about, which isn't confirmed, which isn't recognized due to obvious reasons, but we'll get to that in a second. So maybe six children, who knows? 
Um, during his adventures, performed a lot more sex magic. And next, he moved to Nolens, Louisiana, in 1917. Obviously, that's where all, you know, edgy people move. I'm very edgy, so I'm going to move to New Orleans, New Orleans, because it's, like, really evil there. There's, like, graveyards and stuff and voodoo. That's what people like him do. And he said he loved um, New Orleans. Of course, he didn't really stay there long. You know, as he does, he will move somewhere and then move again. I, I, I don't like moving at all. And it's, you know, the, the modern day where it's a lot easier to move stuff. So I don't know how this guy just continued to move without, you know, any any care. Just, oh, I think I'm going to move again. I'm going to move here now. I'm going to move there. You know, he would move a lot. He would be in a whole bunch more places before his life ended. In local history, around here, in local influence that Crowley had around here is um, he actually spent some time up in Esopus Island up on the Hudson River and painted Felimic slogans on the riverside cliffs, which are no longer there. I looked into this. I looked about vacationing there at my girlfriend. We should go to Esopus Island. Crowley slept here. Crowley camped here and did drugs. And uh, probably he was there alone. He wasn't there with any woman, so he probably just masturbated a lot and, you know, worshipped the occult and did drugs. You know, he needed some time off from people. Um, he later returned to New York City, to Greenwich Village, where he took on his next official Scarlet Woman. Now, he had many women, but not all of them get to be his Scarlet Woman. Scarlet Woman are where he's going to do some some really evil shit with. He's going to do some really, you know, like, edgy stuff with. And this woman would fit that role. So, or a scarlet woman also kind of means, you know, a woman he kind of kept around for more than a few days. Seems you get to be a scarlet woman. You know, you earn the title Scarlet Woman of Crowley. And this one's name was Leah Herzig. You know, yes, and how there is this growing heap of discarded scarlet women in his past and his trail. Um, where do they all go? I don't know. We can't keep track of them all. But there's an entire heap of discarded scarlet women in the life of Crowley. And there would be more. But here's the next one. This one's probably the most significant, though. So he immediately demanded to paint her, as Crowley liked to paint things. He thought he was some kind of painter, though. Where is her paint? Where is paintings now? I don't know. We should look into that. And she wanted him to paint her as a dead soul. So he's like, whoa, this girl's pretty cool. He wants me to paint her as a dead soul. And so Crowley was an avid painter. He was a you know, his paintings were kind of um, abstract in a way. But I'm sure there's some kind of market for them. I'm sure some there's some edgy dude out there that owns. It's like, this is an original Crowley. Isn't it cool? In 1919, after having a massive orgy in New York City with her and many women and men and goats, he moved back to London and then Paris and... He stay. He didn't stay in London because you know, he wasn't too popular there. He kind of have a pretty, he had a pretty bad name there, so Paris was a lot safer for him to go to with his antics. But he was also out of money again. He spent it all in America. Any money that he did have, he was basically scrounging around for money again. And um, at this point, he fell under attack by British tabloid of British tabloid man John Bull. What a name for a tabloid man, right? I'm John Bull, the tabloid man. Believe everything I say. Everything I say is gospel. So, you know, he's one of those guys. The British love their tabloids. This guy was basically 
the guy that filled that role back then, probably mostly talking about the royal family, but, you know, Crowley would do as well. They needed a villain, so Crowley fit that role very well, and he loved fitting that role. Eventually, when Crowley moved to Paris, he sent for his Scarlet Woman, who was still in America, with her child. She had a child, by the way, a young boy. Um, And she was also, um, what do you know, pregnant with, you know, another child by Crowley. That That doesn't take too long when he's around women. They eventually get pregnant. It's normal. If you have the veracity, the sexual appetite of Crowley, then, you know, women around you just get pregnant. This is what happens. So on the way, Herzig, on the boat, Herzig met a nanny traveling back to Paris by the name of Ninette Shamaway. She also had a kid. And this is where things were going to get a bit complicated, as you can imagine, knowing Crowley. Um, Crowley would hire Shamaway to take care of all these kids in his house suddenly. Um, what do you know? And um, sooner or later, lo and behold, um, Shamaway was pregnant also with Crowley's kid. How did that happen? What? He just was walking and he slipped and his, you know, his dick went in. I don't know. And uh, it's just another... <laughs> you know the mentors, that song? Well, that's what happened there. It was a menage a trois. And uh, it's almost like a Jerry Springer episode by this point. And it just gets worse. The next stage in Crowley's life would be his darkest and most debaucherous and most depraved. And this was his foundation of the Abbey of Thelema in 1920. At the peak of his batshit craziness, Crowley purchased a small villa in the town of Cifalu near Palermo, Sicily in April of that year. He came to this decision after consulting the I Ching. This is an ancient Chinese manuscript that translates into Book of Changes, so people look at this for advice. I think it's sort of a history book in, in the Chinese uh, dynasty. He moved to this new residence of total debauchery with his young scarlet woman, Leah, and her son, who had just given birth to Anne Poupe. They called her Poupe. This is Poupe. And that was Charlie Crowley's latest child, Poupe. And um, his pregnant concubine, Nanette, and her child. So think of this situation. There's two young boys, um, a baby, and a pregnant woman. And um, they basically live in this commune in the middle of Sicily. This only, Nothing could go wrong here. This will be fine. Crowley revealed, in fact, how these women would fight over his, his uh, magical penis. You know, they were like, no, it's mine. Now it's my penis. And, you know, he really got off on this. He loved when, you know, his concubines would fight over his manhood, made him even feel more powerful. So this was a house of debauchery and horrors at any standard. So the next things I'm going to say is viewer discretion advice. If you're easily triggered by disgusting things, you should cover your ears and shut this podcast off right now because it's going to get very graphic. The house was um, resided in by his disciples and mistresses. So after a while, there's a lot of followers that moved in as well. And of course they were welcome in this house to partake in the debauchery 
that would take place. And he had frequent orgies and drug binges in front of children, didn't he? In fact, he encouraged them to watch. He thought it would teach them. It was part of their education, their homeschooling. This is what happens when you homeschool kids. People end up having orgies in front of them and doing drugs and all that. And, you know, kids should really be protected from that. It's just, you know, I know you want your kid to be grown up and cool, but this is really taking it too far. I wonder how what mental damage these kids when they grow up. I don't really know anything what happened, the fate of these kids after this, but... I can only imagine the trauma in their lives for witnessing the, these these events in this disgusting house of ill repute. The Abbey featured a nightmare room where disciples would get high and look at porn. I don't think they had you know internet porn, but you know paint pictures, paintings. I don't know whatever kind of porn they had. Nineteen twenty. That's what they looked at. This sounds like you know the day in the life of some uh, guy that lives in his mom's basement. Really, you know, the usual thing. But that's what they did. They, you know, they got off on that, literally. And uh, he once, according to his diaries, he once had a goat have sex with his mistresses and slit its throat upon orgasm in accordance with the ritual, the performed ritual, of course. So, yes, he's like, hey, I'll have this goat fuck you, and when it comes, I will kill it. Yes, isn't that cool? This is the kind of gross things that went on there. Yeah. It's getting too graphic for you. Yes. It gets worse. Uh, they would wear ceremonial robes and perform rituals to the god Ra at set times of the day. Occasionally, they would perform the Gnostic Mass, you know, where they have the naked ladies sit on the altar and then they kiss the spear. We went over that before. And the remainder of the day was open to random sex and drug use. You know, it's like, all right, we did our rituals for today. Just have some orgies that don't involve rituals. And that's pretty much what they would do all day. And meanwhile, they're in like some... Uh, run-down place in Sicily. You can imagine only the environment in Sicily. Is, it's hot and arid there, and uh, there's no air conditioning. It, it, it was a pretty unsanitary situation and would only get worse. A lot of sex magic took place there at the Abbey, and he would occasionally ask locals to join in and even hire young boys as prostitutes to partake in these debaucherous activities. At this point, Crowley began using heroin and cocaine heavily. And this is way before that shit was cool. And so much that he was actually getting cocaine nose and would eventually need surgery for his fucked up nose that he did too much coke through. It was his actions and lifestyle at the Abbey that earned him, at this point, the wickedest man in the world. And this was given to him by tabloid man John Bull. This is where that term came from which would really stick with Crowley for the rest of his life and beyond. Obviously, at this point, you can imagine that conditions at this residence are deteriorating and becoming dangerous for all of the people living there. And based on this hand-to-mouth bohemian lifestyle Crowley and his disciples were living, one might imagine the filth and stench that must have been emanating from this place in such a hot climate like Sicily. You can only imagine just the disease factory in there. The Abbey at this point was overrun with wild dogs and cats. And obviously there was probably shit everywhere on the floor. And as a result, you know, this was the result of their do as thou will left. If you do as you will all the time, you know, piles of shit form on the floor and you did as you will. So you didn't clean them up because I don't really, I don't, do is I don't wilt like picking up the shit on the floor, so I'm just going to leave it there. 
you know, it'll go away. Nature will do as its will, and it'll go away eventually. So that's really how they were running this place. You can imagine this turned into a disaster. Rumors of people eating shit, blood, and jism, and flesh in accordance with rituals surfaced as well. So this is part of the rituals. They would consume that stuff for some sort of religious reason. I can't imagine the appeal in that, but this is what was known to happen. But due to these conditions, sadly, Crowley's new daughter, Poupey, died in 1920, probably due to the elevated level of his exposure with too much Poupey. There's too much Poupey, so Poupey died. Yes, sad, but, you know, that joke was... That was just... They were asking for that one. I'm sorry for all of you people triggered by me talking about a dead Poupey. Crowley may never have been proven to have killed anyone directly, but you can imagine his wicked philosophy... And total disregard for others may have led to the death of dozens in his lifetime, including many of his own children, born and unborn. Now, this would only go on for so long. The Abbey would eventually, this party would come to an end. His other mistress, you know, remember the one that Leia met on the boat, um, gave birth to a new daughter. Her name was Astarte Lulupanthea. You could never just name her his, you know, children, Mike or or Jennifer or something normal. He's got to always call them something interesting. Like, kind of like what people name their kids today. They always have to call the, they can't call the kid Mike or John. They got to call it Madison or something. And it was, you know, that's what people did back then. Or that's what Crowley did back then. It was no worries to Crowley. He had a new kid now. He's like, oh, we got another one. So the other one died, but we got a replacement. It's fine. At this point, Crowley returned to London. He left everyone back at the Abbey to wither and shit. Because uh, he was having a pretty bad problem with his junk addiction. It was getting out of hand, so he needed help. And he also needed to raise more funds to continue his debaucherous lifestyle. Wasn't certainly wasn't making any money down there. And it, you know, he needed money for food and things like that. So he needed to find more money. So while there, he wrote a book called The Diary of a Drug Fiend, basically. And this would help raise money. This was a book that was uh, sort of a response to the recent banning of dangerous drugs in England. You know, it was like anti-prohibition, which was, you know, very progressive back then for someone to do that. So the book sold rather well, and it made him some money. It's, it's amazing. I always find it amazing how many books that Crowley wrote in such a short time, despite his drug habits, his inquenchable sexual appetite, and his outright ridiculousness. You know, he, he was a very focused guy. He got things done, despite, like, fucking and doing drugs all the time. Like, he had time to sit down and focus and read and write a book. So, very intelligent man, very focused man. I don't know how he did it. I guess he didn't, you know, didn't have a cell phone or anything. He just, you know, when he wasn't fucking or doing drugs, he was like, I think I'll write a book or paint a picture. You know, he had, he uh, budgeted his time very effectively. Eventually, a young Thelemite named Raoul Loveday moved to the Abbey along with his wife, Betty May. This would be the event that truly spelled the end of this raging fire of wanton debauchery. Loveday was a devout disciple of Crowley. He took him very seriously. However, Loveday's wife hated this new situation for some reason. I'm not, he's like, we are going to the Abbey and we're going to live in piles of shit. And, you know, he couldn't understand why she was not down with that. I don't know why. I don't know why either. That just sounds like a great idea. We have all the drugs we want. We have all the sex we want. And there's shit everywhere. This sounds like a great idea. Loveday, among the other disciples, were forbidden to use the pronoun I 
that was reserved only for the Abyssimus, which Crowley now referred to himself as. I am the Abyssimus. And this, of course, meant the top, better than the gods. I am the head honcho. I am the best. I am Donald Trump. I am the Abyssimus. So anyway, upon deviation from this rule for any member, the offender must cut his or herself for each offense with a razor, probably a rusty shit-covered razor, the top of a body covered in festering wounds, as Loveday had lots of trouble with this rule. He, he couldn't stop saying I, so he had to keep cutting himself. He's like, damn, I just can't stop saying I. Uh, I just have to keep cutting. I think he liked it. He participated in a ritual that required him to drink cat blood, as there was no shortage of stray cats. You can just kill one and drink it. You know, just cut the head off and just use it as like a, you know, like a bottle. You just drink it straight from the cat. So that's what they did. And, um, you know, trigger warning for all you crazy cat people. You're like, oh my God, he killed a cat. What is wrong with you cat people anyway? I, I, I don't, get a life. I know, you know, you like, I like animals too. I prefer dogs. But, you know, you take cats a little too seriously and it's kind of creepy. Stop it. He was also drinking from a local stream, which was probably, insistently, it was probably a bad idea. You know, there's probably a bunch of Sicilian guys down the stream pissing in it. So, and then you drank it and you wondered why you got sick. So as one might imagine, Loveday soon developed a fatal liver infection resulting in his death in 1923. His wife, returning to England upon this, unleashed her ordeal upon the tabloids and they had a field day with it. This wild, coke-fueled, shit-stained sex orgy continued until, of course, old El Duce got wind of it. That's right, El Duce... Benito Mussolini was now in power in the 1920s in Italy. Besides making the trains run on time, old Mussolini chased all purveyors of shit-stained sex orgies out of this fascist nation, helping make Italy great again. You know, I have a story. My grandfather actually was a soldier for Mussolini. You know, maybe we'll get into it another time, but he actually, actually had a very, had a very um, perilous war story about how he was sent to Albania and it was abandoned and the Germans took him prisoner because they surrendered. And then he had to make his way back to Italy on his own. So it was very, if it's a true story, it's a very interesting story. They should make a movie about it. But yes, I come from a long line of fascists. I am not one myself. However, you know, I have, it's in my blood, fascism, unfortunately. But I turned out okay for now. Crowley was summarily deported from the country. <laughs> you know, he's glad that's all that happened to him. You know, Mussolini was just like, all right, just get out of here. Like, he didn't shoot him or anything. And of course, you have El Duce. And officially ending this wild, out-of-control shit sex party for good. Goodbye. The Abbey actually still stands abandoned to this day. I've seen pictures of it. I don't think anyone's burnt it down yet. And I don't think it's protected or anything. I, like, from what I can see, it's just there and people just go to it. Uh, it's complete with Crowley's wickedly bad paintings adorning the walls. And um, I would imagine this place is probably a spot for many occultists and hipsters upon any self-seeking pilgrimage that they might embark on with their parents' money. Seems like that. Well, a lot of people seem to take pictures from inside it. And there's a lot of sinister paintings that I believe Crowley did himself. And I'm surprised this place isn't protected or destroyed or something. It looks like, as far as I know, it's just there and you can go to it. This next chapter is called The Fall of the Beast. The Abbey of Thelema would be Crowley's last hurrah. Everything from this point on would be downhill as his life would be slowing down and coming to an end. Winding down, you could say. 
Following Crowley's departure from the Abbey of Thelema, upon his return to England, he's, what do you know, he sunk into poverty and heroin addiction. What do you know? This guy is like a regular has-been washed-up rock star. Due to the constant ridicule by tabloids in England, he decided to stay in France, you know, a country that always seemed to treat him a little bit better, as they do, a little more open-minded. He parted ways with Herzig at this point, and she ended up destitute on the streets of Paris, prostituting herself for food. This is what happens when Crowley, you know, when Crowley finishes with you. She would eventually get on her feet and move back to America, where she would become a devout Catholic with her child. And, um, you know, the damage this guy does to people, he leaves them broken and battered. She's lucky she survived. That's where um, the story of Leila Herzog ends. However, here is an interesting tidbit we found out during our research. We're going to add this in. Maybe a lot of people don't recognize this, but I, I think this is too interesting to pass up. Um, I think a lot of official documents on Crowley do not recognize this. The more conspiratorial ones do, so we're going to go over this. The Barbara Bush conspiracy. Interesting enough, Barbara Bush, of course, just passed away. The first lady of George H.W. Bush, president from, was it 1988 to 1992, is it? Something like that. I was around, I remember it. Gulf War, Panama, I remember all that. And let's go over this story now. This is interesting. So make you think. You might not believe it at first. You'll be like, oh, that sounds like some Alex Jones shit, but listen to this. Okay? 1924, well in France, Crowley had taken up residence with an old colleague from the last episode. His name was Frank Harris with his, and his wife, Nellie O'Hara. And he had done so simply because he had nowhere else to go. And they were like, all right, Crowley, you could stay with us. I feel sorry for you. So enter a young woman named Pauline Pierce. She was married to Frank Pierce, president of the McCall Corporation in America. Very upstanding, well-to-do racist gentlemen. Both close friends to the Harrises, Pauline decided to visit her friends in France without her husband, which you know, I guess was a normal thing if you were rich back then. I'm just going to go to Paris. No big deal. According to the diaries of Crowley, which he kept, you know, in, very de in great detail, he had performed various sex magic rites in accordance with his title of Abyssimus. Crowley was known, like I said, to keep detailed records of his sex magic rituals. And the question is, did these sex rituals involve Pierce and her hosts? Did they have some elitist orgy like the kinds that Alex Jones talks about? Well, let's find out. We all know that upon her return, according, you know, and obviously we can't totally confirm this, Pierce gave birth to a Barbara Pierce eight months after her return. You might know her. In fact, she just recently passed away. She was the first lady to former President George H.W. Bush and mother to everyone's favorite George W. Bush. That's right, Barbara Bush. Was Barbara Bush the illegitimate child of Aleister Crowley? Some say. We don't know. But it's too interesting to pass up. Imagine if this is true. Just, just when I hear things like this, um, it makes me think, like, when you hear all those conspiracy theories on Alex Jones and, you know, Roger Stone and, you know, about how all the Washington elites are involved in the occult and they're Satan worshippers, interdimensional child molesters, pizza gates and illumineers, just is all to maintain their grip on power. And it makes you think, it's like, hmm, are they? Is it true? 
makes you wonder sometimes that, you know, they are a bunch of like elitist occultists and, you know, there really is Pizzagate. There really is Pizzagate. I'm telling you, maybe it's true, people. I don't know. Maybe Alex Jones is right the whole time and we're all wrong. Can you imagine that? Crazy. Anyway. After um, allegedly spawning the mother of the guy who made war so profitable for rich businessmen, Crowley continued to live in France and made eventual gains from his OTO status, fees and whatnot, you know, rich people paying to be in this thing, this ridiculous club. Uh, he would eventually be appointed head of the worldwide OTO by Theodore Royce upon Royce's death. So Crowley is now the president, the grandmaster of the OTO, the Ordo Templi Orientis. This, of course, was challenged by other prospecting members, but upheld by prominent members such as Carl Garmer, who would be a close trustee of Crowley in the future. Surprisingly, being out of money once more, Crowley convinced wealthy bohemians by likes of Israel Regardi not only to unapologetically donate his entire fortune to Crowley's cause, but to even be his loyal secretary. The, the power this guy had over dumb rich people, even when he was poor, was, was amazing. He must have been hypnotic. He must have had, like, Hitler powers, this guy. He happened to accomplish this by um, fucking in front of Regardi. And um, Regardi was sold. He was like, wow, that was amazing. So if you need money next time, remember that maybe if you, like, fuck in, son in front of someone, you might maybe get, um, they might give you what you want. In 1929... Once more, Crowley gets married to a Maria Teresa Sanchez, a native of Nicaragua. Nicaragua. Um, around this time, Crowley was also deported from France, possibly due to his alleged pro-German past. They basically caught on to it. They're like, all right, scared of this Hitler guy that's coming up, so you have a lot of you know, pro-German ties. Get lost. We don't want you around. Not too much is known about the second wife. I cannot find any information on her, but apparently she stayed to him she stayed with him till his death, so I don't know really what her role was. There was no children involved. We ha there's I have to really do some deep searching into who this woman was and why she was married to him. Maybe he just got married throughout. Who knows? And they just never got around to getting a divorce. We don't know. It's, it's one of those lost mysteries that most people don't know the answer to. Um, upon his deportation, Crowley moved to Berlin. When he was in Berlin, he took a trip to Portugal. And Crowley decided to fake his own death and then re-emerged re in Berlin for his art expedition. Genius marketing upon Crowley. He's like, I'm dead. Oh, no, I'm alive. Buy my art. But still nobody bought his shitty art. That's a good way of doing things. Fake your death, trying to sell something, then reappear during that big event. And maybe people will buy whatever you're selling. But it didn't work for Crowley. He was still broke. Eventually, he returned to London. He keeps moving, this guy. Though he's not moving as much anymore because he's getting old. He's not, like, traveling the world anymore. So he's back in London now in 1932. And believe it or not, he was out of money. Again, it's tough being a rich guy with, you know, whose your inheritance is dried up. It must be tough. You know, but he seems to get by. He seems to keep living, this guy. He doesn't ever end up on the street. He always cons someone into taking care of him. He's very good at that. This would be the theme of his life following the First World War, basically. He was basically on a downward spiral from that point on. 
in and out of poverty. Also, he was hopelessly addicted to heroin at this point. And he used heroin because he had certain health problems and where the medicine was not available anymore, he would heroin was the obvious alternative to cure him, so he would get he would always be addicted to this drug, but it never killed him though, which is amazing. In order to procure some more funds, he decided to make like Trump and sue people for libel. He's like, ah, I need money. Oh, I could sue people because a lot of people are talking shit about me. So I could sue them. And that's what he did. So someone like Crowley, like I said, had lots of negative press in publication regarding his libertine lifestyle. So naturally, he had a lot of targets. So he's like, Ooh, who should I go after? He attempted to sue the Constable and Company publishing company for Nina Hamnett's Laughing Torso, which was um, a book talking shit about Crowley. It was, you know, a revealing book, you know, saying things that maybe Crowley did not like, as, you know, many books are written that do this, even to this day. Trump is probably a good example of having books about him that he does not like or agree with, things that he does not want getting out there. Crowley was the same way. Now, of course, he would lose this high-profile case. And it was a very public high-profile case. And this, you know, after lawyer fees would leave Crowley completely bankrupt. At this point, he lost everything. He had nothing left. Crowley, however, did receive lots of press from this trial. And there's always something about being famous. Even when the result is negative, Crowley always embraced press. Even if it was negative. If it was negative, he would go along with it. He would be like, Sounds good to me. Let's use this. All press was good press to him. So that's really all he had to go by at this point. Crowley would have, believe it or not, one more child with a Deidre Patricia O'Doherty. Um, and he named this child Alistair Ataturk. And this would um, be one more kid with someone other than his wife. Of course, this is really just a platonic friend who he decided to have a kid with. But of course, she would go her own way after this. After and. She basically wanted a kid through Crowley and had no use for him. So she was the empowered one here. And that would be the last child that Crowley would have. His life is really winding down now, and he's getting old. It's now 1939, and World War II has broken out in Europe. Fading into bankruptcy and obscurity... His remaining years would be rather short and mostly uneventful. Of course, when World War II broke out, he offered his services to British naval intelligence. He believed that Hitler and Nazism were influenced by the occult and his own religion of Thelema. Therefore, his knowledge of these subjects would be a use to British intelligence. However, they turned him down. They were like, well, no, that's fine. But we don't really need you, you crazy fuck. However, Hitler would actually abolish the OTO in Germany, where it came from, resulting in Karl Garmer's fleeing to the U.S. So that was up there. Hitler was, you know, at least pretended he wasn't into the occult because he got rid of all vestiges of the occult in Germany, considering them sacrilegious. Before this, Crowley was actually a fan of Nazism and claimed that Mein Kampf was influenced by his Book of Law, that he sent a copy to Adolf Hitler, and therefore Hitler wrote... Mein Kampf is because of Crowley. He wanted to take credit for it, believe it or not. Rumor has it that super sleuth and bond creator Ian Fleming, upon his interrogation of captured, defected Nazi mastermind Rudolf Hess, who 
actually mysteriously left Germany in a plane and parachuted over England and was summarily captured um, for a mysterious reason. No one really knows why he did this. However, he rotted in prison until the 80s, until he died. He recommended employing Crowley to determine if the Nazis did have an actual link to the occult, but was actually never summoned. So he was, um, you know, supported by Ian Fleming, as well as um, Roald Dahl actually was also part of British intelligence and, you know, associated with Aleister Crowley, which is interesting. You know, what how these writers were involved in British intelligence during the war. It really makes them kind of cool. In 1942, uh, the only source of income for Crowley was from the California branch of the OTO, led by a rocket scientist. I mean, a literal rocket scientist, not, you know, you call someone weird a rocket scientist. This guy was actually a rocket scientist. His name was Jack Parsons. And I think we might have to do a podcast just on Bar Jack Parsons. He has his own interesting things going on in his life. Parsons introduced a young member of the OTO by the name of... L. Ron Hubbard, you might have heard of him. He's the biggest con man in history, and his legacy still lives on. His religion of Scientology ruins people's lives every day to this day. Can you hear me, Scientologists? Are you going to come after me? Come get me. I am maledictus. I will destroy you. Interesting enough, Hubbard would <laughs> run off with Parsons' girlfriend and priestess, but later claimed he saved her from black magic and helped destroy the OTO in America. So claims L. Ron Hubbard, very trustworthy man. However, it appears that um, more than likely that con man L. Ron Hubbard's bullshit religion of Scientology was somewhat influenced by Thelemic principles. So maybe we'll get into that one day. L. Ron Hubbard, not very metal, but nevertheless ridiculous. So that's his Crowley's influence on crossing paths with L. Ron Hubbard. So that's all another story, though. In 1944, he relocated to Hastings, which would be his final move. He lived in the Netherwood boarding house, and he conducted a lot of interviews for books and, you know, things written about him. He, he basically knew the end of his life was coming. He knew the end of his life was coming because he claimed he couldn't get a heart on anymore. So he knew, you know, it's time. I, I, can't, I can't fuck anymore, so my time is up soon. And um, that's how he determined this. Uh, Crowley was visited by friends and family in his last days, final days, including the mother of his last child, Deidre Doherty, Deidre O'Doherty, and his son, Alistair Ataturk, so he had some family that still gave a shit about him. On December 1st, 1947, Alistair Crowley died of chronic bronchitis. He was 72. His last words read, I am perplexed. Crowley was cremated in Brighton soon after and attended by only two or three mourners. The guy who was so influential and controversial in his life. In the end, he was lonely. He died lonely in a fiery end of cremation. So that's what happens, people. There was no service. His poem Pan, he wrote many poems in his life, was read by one of the mourners, and they say a tremendous thunderstorm raged soon after, which they say Crowley would have liked. He's like, well, that is cool. Oh, pretty cool a thunderstorm raged after my death. It's believed that his cremated ashes were sent to OTO successor Carl Germer and buried at his new residence in Hampton, New Jersey. New Jersey, the capital of misery. 
the place where metal forgot to die, and the burial place of Aleister Crowley, and the home of the Here Lies Metal podcasts with Maledictus. In closing, Aleister Crowley might have been dead and soon forgotten among the masses, but soon enough his legacy would be resurrected. It's important to remember that despite Crowley actually being a pretty despicable guy, he spent most of his life being falsely accused by the mainstream media of being a Satan worshiper. This myth still goes strong today, especially in the metal community. I think he's some sort of evil Satan guy, which he was not. I must stress that's totally false. Um, this man despised all Judeo-Christian philosophies, and Satan was not recognized in his philosophy whatsoever. Crowley was often quoted as, um, Crowley was once quoted as saying, I despise Christianity as socialists despise soap. So he's like, I hate Christianity like hippies don't take baths. Understand? So he was not a fan of Judeo-Christianity at all. Some say these anti-Christian attitudes were the direct result of his youth experience with the Plymouth Brethren cult. There you go, Plymouth Brethren cult. You helped Aleister Crowley become possible as well as many other sick people in history. Despite these fallacies, Crowley actually embraced these lies. Um, he loved being called the most wicked man in the world in the B666 persona given to him by the tabloid media. Crowley would even jokingly confirm to the press that um, he took part in the sacrifices of over 100 children every time he masturbated. <laughs> Funny guy. When, uh, <laughs> which was, you know, often... However, despite the fact that Crowley had nothing to do with Satan worship, um, his philosophy in many ways embodied the esoteric discourse in Satanism by, you know, his lifestyle and philosophy. As a result, Satan church founders Anton LaVey or Michael Aquino would um, take note of his work and follow from it. So it did have an influence on the Church of Satan, which is actually an atheist organization. I don't realize that. But we'll get into that. We'll get into Anton LaVey in another podcast. He will definitely be in one of our podcasts. Okay, so this is where it gets gross. Once again, trigger warning. Crowley's view of sex was that of a sacrament. So he was a very devout man, as you can imagine. The consumption of sexual fluids was interpreted as a Eucharist. Kind of like when the Catholics pretend, you know, the bread... Is the flesh of Christ? Well, Crowley didn't bother with those wafers or pretend anything. He, you know, he called these things cakes of light. I just thought this was interesting, so I had to add this. Cakes of light. It sounds like a good name for a shitty metal band. We are cakes of light. And uh, these were biscuits soaked in menstrual blood or a mixture of semen. So um, you can imagine how tasty that might have been. Those were, uh, that's how you took communion in uh, the world of Thelema. So, you know, if you, don't, if you think the body of Christ is gross, you know, you could try that. Politically, Crowley described his philosophy as the aristocratic communist, which I must agree is a perfect description. There's, there's no better word for that, Crowley. Kudos to you for saying that. His religion of Thelema continued to develop after his death. In 1969, the OTO was reborn in California 
as promised by Crowley, led by Grady McMurdy, who he promised this to. Um, it always scares me, though, the fact that so many people involved in Thelema and the occult, the OTO, and similar things were always wealthy elitists rather than common slobs. You know, it's a fact that, you know, like I said before, makes Alex Jones, all of his rantings seem legit sometimes. And most relevant here in um, the Here Lies Metal podcast, Crowley's do as thou wilt philosophy would influence lifestyles of a many a rock star in the 1960s onwards. This is really why we did this podcast is Crowley's influence on music and mostly metal. Now, as you know, famously Ozzy Osbourne's song, Mr. Crowley, um, of course, is based on Mr. Aleister Crowley and Ozzy Osbourne called him a phenomenon of his time. Crowley also, um, his photo appeared on the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's album, where you have that group of people on the cover. He's in the upper left-hand corner. He's that crazy-looking bald guy up there. The Beatles testified that characters who appeared on this cover were heroes up there. Interesting enough, the Beatles were considering adding Adolf Hitler to the spread. So uh, I bet you they're glad that they didn't do that. I know all you Beatles uh, haters out there would love that piece of information. Did you know that? You're like, oh, look, the Beatles are Nazis. <laughs> the back cover of Doors 13 album, Jim Morrison and other members of the Doors are shown posing with a bust of Aleister Crowley. Interesting. David Bowie referred to Crowley in his song Quicksand from the album The Man Who Sold the World. He had a big obsession with Aleister Crowley. Graham Bond um, thought he was Crowley's illegitimate son recorded albums of satanic rituals with um, his band Holy Magic. Iron Maiden lead singer Bruce Dickinson once said, we referred to things like the tarot and ideas of people like Aleister Crowley Iron Maiden also um, had a song called Moonchild from the Seventh Son of the Seventh Son album. That, of course, refers to Aleister Crowley. There was a book written about him with that title. Daryl Hall of the rock duo, duo Hall and Oates, admit that he was a major follower, fan of Crowley. Who would have known? Sting also um, claims he spent many hours, which probably isn't too long in Sting life, um, studying Crowley's writings. The band Ministry uh, referred to Crowley in the lyrics and sampled his voices in the track Golden Dawn from the Land of Rape and Honey album. Swiss black metal band Celtic Frost um, released an album called To Megatherion, which this podcast is titled after. Uh, of course, this means The Great Beast, which referred to Aleister Crowley. And most importantly, most famously, Worshipper of Aleister Crowley was Led Zeppelin's guitarist Jimmy Page, who had purchased Crowley's Loch Ness estate, the Boleskine House, from 1971 to 1992. It's also said that some pressings of Led Zeppelin 3 album, one or more Aleister Crowley coats, are inscribed into the runoff matrix on the vinyl, the space between the last groove and the label. But um, this might be a misinterpretation of the signatures left by the master cutter. So we're not you know, sure if that's actually true. Page also composed the original music for Lucifer Rising, a film by Kenneth Anger, who was a guy who was heavily influenced by Crowley, who's a film director. Mick Jagger also composed a soundtrack to another Crowley-inspired Kenneth Anger film, Invocation of My Demon Brother. 
the police track Synchronicity 2 from the album Synchronicity by the police is said to be partly inspired by the strange events at the Boliskine house while Jimmy Page was the owner as you hear some something crawls to the surface of a dark, dark Scottish lock I think he's referring to that uh, most interestingly the case of Eddie and the Hot Rod uh, wrote a song that was partly inspired by Crowley's famous motto do as thou wilt and the band wrote a song sort of a parody on that called do anything you want to do this was of course an obscure band that almost made it and some say they didn't make it due to a curse placed on them by an angry Jimmy Page I always found this story interesting basically the band in their album cover decided to feature a portrait of Aleister Crowley, that scary portrait of his bald head where he's giving him that look, but they put Mickey Mouse ears on him. Obviously, Jimmy Page did not find that funny at all. He found that extremely disrespectful and blasphemous to the great Megatherion, and it is rumored that Jimmy Page placed a curse on this band, destroying any hopes of fame that they had as they were a band on a meteoric rise suddenly ended out of nowhere. Jimmy Page is known to have placed a curse on them for their disrespectful treatment of the Great Beast. And from that moment, the band claims they were plagued by a series of strange problems. They were dropped from their label, their manager became hooked on heroin, and they never bothered um, to uh, reach any higher parts of the charts anymore, suddenly, out of nowhere. Uh, it's probably because their music was just pretty bad. From behind his Mickey Mouse ears and with the help of the satanic rock royalty, Crowley got his revenge on this band. So the curse of Crowley struck a band into obscurity. And ladies and gentlemen, that is all we have on this podcast about Aleister Crowley. We thank you for listening to this podcast. Let's roll the credits. My voice is shot. Um. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, thanks once again for listening. Be sure to follow us on social media, including Twitter at Here Lies Metal, Facebook at Here Lies Metal, Instagram at Metal Lies Here, and Gmail, Here Lies Metal at gmail.com. Give us a shout out. Contact us. Tell us something. Tell us what you want to hear. Tell us what you don't like. Give us some feedback on the show. Give us some facts. Give us some hatred. Give us anything. Just acknowledge us. We're out here. I'm out here working hard making this podcast, so give me some feedback, people. Be sure to subscribe to Your Lives Metal on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Don't forget to rate us, even if you hate us. If this podcast sucks, only you have the power to destroy it. And I expect you to exercise your rights to do so. It is my passion once again to bring you, the listener, these tales of metal. However, if you'd like to support this podcast... Your donations are highly appreciated. You could do that at patreon.com forward slash here lies metal. Give us a quarter. Give us a dollar. Give us five dollars. Give us ten dollars. Give us a zillion dollars. Support this podcast. I know you guys go on Twitch and you support some stupid game. So you could like, you know, give me a quarter. Right? That'd be cool. So anyway, thanks once again for listening to the Here Lies Metal podcast. We will be with you once again in about two weeks with, I think we're going to go back to the playlist format. I think we gave you enough history for the past two episodes. You're probably tired of it. You're probably bored. You're probably like, we don't, you know, want to learn. Why the hell are you trying to teach us stuff about some obscure, wealthy occultists that really didn't accomplish anything? I don't know. It just seemed interesting to me. 
you know, shoot me. But yes, next week we will go into a playlist. Maybe something, something to do with metal, I think. Yeah, we'll do something like that. So anyway, thank you for listening once again. Have a great week. This has been Maledictus with the Here Lies Metal Podcast. Goodbye. <laughs>